Welcome back to your next stop. This is Juliette Hahn. In this episode, I speak with Phil Kornerchuk. He is the founder of Stonewater Training. Phil has a really interesting background. He basically dropped out of high school at 16, joined the Canadian Army on the day he turned 17, ended up in the U.S. Army because he has a dual citizenship, and then climbing the ranks because people saw the leadership quality that he had. We really talk about um, his journey. It is really fascinating. You can find Phil at stonewatertraining.com. You can also find him on Instagram, stonewater underscore training. You can find him on LinkedIn. Um, one of the things that I think is amazing is that Phil has eight kids. There's um, a few that are adopted and his wife is in medical school. And he held multiple special operations um, titles. Like he, he was in the army in these different divisions um, and multiple of it, which is really amazing. Ended up when he finally did retire, he was a lieutenant colonel. So, um, I mean, really, really high in the armed forces. Beautiful story. You do not want to miss this. Again, Phil Kornachuk, stonewatertraining.com. His company is a leadership development uh, company. But the thing that's really cool is they actually go out into nature and do events. Not all of them, but a lot of them are out in nature where you're really developing these leadership skills and the companies that he's working with, the sports teams that he's working with. Fascinating. You do not want to miss this. Enjoy this episode of Your Next Stop with Phil Kornachuk. Welcome back to your next stop. You know, I say it every single time, but I truly am excited to have you guys meet another person that has followed a passion. Phil Kornachuk, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Juliet? So you guys, this is going to be a really exciting episode for many different reasons. You know that my dad was in the military. Phil started uh, in multiple special operations. He is now a leadership development uh company. He actually runs a leadership development company called Stonewater Training. You can find that at stonewatertraining.com. You can also find Phil on LinkedIn. You can also find him on Instagram, and that is stonewater underscore training. Some really fun things that we're going to get into. Not only was Phil in multiple special, you know, special operations in the army, he also has eight kids. His wife's in medical school. So this is someone that is a high achiever. So you know, again, welcome Phil to your next stop. I'm really excited about this. Yeah, huge, huge honor to be here. So I want to start kind of, we go back with your next stop. We go back, we kind of go back to like growing up. Where did you grow up? And then, you know, we're going to get into the path how you, you know, decided to go into the army and, and where that led you. Yeah, sure. So just, just stop me at any point. But bottom line, I was born at a very young age, like a lot of us in a hospital <laughs> in Eastern Ontario. So uh, my dad was a Baptist minister. My mom was a homemaker, super, super strict upbringing. And like any kid who's raised by a Baptist minister, I decided to go the exact opposite. And, and I was a bit of a hellion. So I was a high school dropout and uh, I left home uh, when I was 16. And on my 17th birthday on that, that day, I ended up joining the Canadian army because like seemed cooler than McDonald's, which is what I was doing at the time. No kidding. <laughs> so I enlisted in the Canadian Army, and uh, I had people there who just really wouldn't tolerate my BS. And they're like, hey, you're part of this organization. Here's the standard. Suck it up, buttercup. No one cares about your wacky upbringing, you know, in a large family with a crazy strict dad. Like, just, it's time to 
you know, rise to the standard and play the game. Uh, so that was my first experience with leaders who kind of both pushed me, but also gave me the resources I needed to succeed. And I found out like, hey, I'm actually halfway decent at this. If I don't quit, I can do some fairly impressive things. So I knocked my high school out to the Canadian Army for about two years. And then like I'm, I'm, you know, now we're talking like the very early 90s. Uh, and the U.S. Army had these amazing commercials, like people are, you know, driving rafts into helicopters and doing wheelies on motorcycles. And the Canadian Army, like, there was 11 of us and we had two guns. So we're like, have you seen those commercials? <laughs> I was a dual citizen. My mom's from Louisiana. So uh, right. I literally, like, on a pass from the Canadian Army, I came down and, you know, enlisted in the U.S. Army to be a paratrooper because that's what the commercials made seem cool. And I'd only been on a plane, like, twice before in my life. So I figured I'd get more plane rides. So as a paratrooper, I might not land, but at least I get to take off and ride around in them. Uh, so yeah, I enlisted, I did that. And I had some leaders there who were looking at me and they're like, you know, um, you've, you've got more to give. Have you ever thought about being an officer? I'm like, no. Why would I want to do that? You guys just sit in front of a, at that time, what wasn't a computer. You're just, you do, you guys are doing paperwork. That's kind of lame. I do fun things. And they're like, have you seen the pay scales? I'm like, no. And then I saw them. I'm like, okay, actually, this officer business doesn't sound too bad. So again, they kind of pushed me, supported me. And I, uh, I went from high school dropout to going to Gonzaga University, uh, in their reserve officer training corps program and, uh, became an officer in the U.S. Army in the infantry. So walk, shoot, that kind of thing. Well, and you know what I think is, but you know, a lot of people don't think about is that in the armed services, you do, you know, there are a lot of things that people don't realize, like you can go to college when you're already in there. So just because you dropped out of high school, didn't mean that that was your end of your story, right? You're just now dropped out of school, went into the military, and that's it. No, you had people that saw some really good things about you and pushed you, which I think is really important in this world and really around where you could have went two ways, right? You could have been pushed and been like, F you. I'm going my own way, or you could have done what you did and really took it and sat on it and said, you know what, maybe I can. So like, I want everyone listening to think about the times in your life where you've had someone push you and did you kind of, you know, not do it or did you really jump in with two feet, which it sounded like you jumped in, you know, with two feet and really, and really took what they were saying to heart. Yeah. And I mean, I think there was a huge lesson there too, not just as the person who's being challenged by others, like, Hey, you've got more to give but also to us as parents, friends, leaders, right? Like, you know, to look at someone and go, I can judge you on your past mistakes. That's pretty easy to do. You screwed up here. You messed that project up. You dropped the ball. I can define you by that, or I can choose to define you by your potential. Meaning like, yeah, okay, you're human. No one's perfect, but I think you could go further and do more. And, and here's some options and I'm going to support you. Now, you know, I try that with my kids. I, I mean, if I can get my kids to put the dishes in the dishwasher, it's a miracle. So this, this is, this is me and you talking. We'll see later. I'll be like, come on, I'll just put your clothes in the drawer. But, um, no, but well, I mean, it is a huge part. Yeah. No, and I want to pause you really quickly because you just brought something up, which is really interesting also is you were a teenager, right? So you were 16, you dropped out of school, you went into the, the military. We're raising, I mean, we talked about this when we first, you know, met, um, a couple of weeks ago where, you know, my listeners know I just love to like see the energy, how we kind of mesh, you know, if your story really fits on the podcast, but I don't like 
you know, too much, but we did have a long conversation about teenagers because you have a ton of them. And I, I think I was having a day. And then when we started talking, I was like, Oh, he's got eight teenagers. Like <laughs> I'm going to take what, you know, what, what I was going through at that moment and really think of it multi, you know, multiplied. So for the fact that you at 16 went into the military and now you're raising teenagers. Do you sometimes get like frustrated? Like, guys, this is where I was. I mean, it's almost like when our parents say, I walked up that hill, you know, with no shoes and like 20 degrees. Um, how do you kind of take what your background is and as raising kids? Yeah. First off, I thank God every day that I'm not raising myself because my kids are all so much better than I was. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, truly, I just think it's, it's a totally different world, right? No one steps in the same river twice. Like with Stonewater, we use all these outdoor analogies because I like to do everything outdoors. And like, you know, one of the things about ri rivers is it's, you change the river changes. It's always flowing. So when I, when I'm with my kids, I don't go, Oh, when I was 17, I was on my own and doing this and that. No, I, I just look like, yeah, I wasn't 17 in 2022 or 2023 with all the, stuff kind of we've gone through and all the different distractions present, like it's, it's different. Um, and every now and again, they'll have stories about like me as a kid and they're like, Oh my dad, if we did that, like you would lose your mind. I'm like, yeah, you're hundred percent right. Like never, ever, ever paint the hamster like neon colors. That's wrong on every level, you know? Um, so no, I, I, I honestly don't kind of project where I was at on them just cause uh, it's just such a different time and, and you see them for individuals. So yeah, we have, we have eight, eight kids, but I mean, four, you know, four adopted. So they, everyone's got different backgrounds and even having kind of a blended family like that. There's, there's a lot of different dynamics for everyone. So yeah, they're all kind of on their own path. I just want to make sure they're doing their path, uh, to the fullest extent you know, possible that they're willing to pursue. Yeah. And I, and I hundred percent agree. Cause I don't do that with my kids either, but I always find it interesting. Like, you know, I feel like I kind of grew up in a regular teenage world, but like when someone doesn't, is it like, you know, do you see them and be like, wait, why are you not doing this when I did it? So I appreciate that explanation. Um, and so now I'm going to kind of take you back to where we were. So you went in, you went to university, became an officer. And so, you know, where did that lead you from there? Yeah. So bottom line, uh, when I was enlisted in the U S army, you know, and I was in charge of four people or whatever, like a kind of a lower level leadership position, uh, had some officers and other folks I worked with said, Hey, you know, you should think about officer training, which I had zero interest. Cause you know, that was to me, that was planning and that was paperwork that wasn't particularly engaging to, you know, me at 21. And then they were like, well, have you, have you seen the paycheck? Like, have you seen the pay scales? And then I looked, I'm like, actually officer training sounds awesome. And so I applied. I mean, I just checked the boxes, did the work and has accepted to Gonzaga University's ROTC program. And so the army let me go to pursue that. And I came back, you know, three years later, uh, with a degree and, uh, you know, cum laude certification in my bachelor's in biology, which I've never used since I graduated. Um, but then I, I came back and now I was an officer. I was in charge of you know, 45 people and my job was to kind of craft the vision and frame the mission and, and, you know, get the team behind it and sort of engage them so we could collaborate and plan and execute at a high level. And pre 9-11, this is all training. But then during that time is when 9-11 happened. And then all of a sudden the dynamic shifted from, hey, you know, we're, we're training, you know, maybe combat one day, but it was kind of this uh, 
you know, ambiguous, like what if maybe, and after nine 11, you're like, Oh snap, like we're, we're really doing things. While I was going through this again, another example, there's this leader, he's a retired four star. His name's John Nicholson. Uh, he and I actually, our paths kept crossing my entire military career. Uh, but at this point he was a Lieutenant Colonel and I was working for him and he's like, Hey man, you know, you should think about going to Ranger Regiment, which is a special operations organization. I was like, yeah, that's cool. But you know, they're in shape. They're, they're edgy. They're smart. Like I'm pretty average. And he's like, yeah, you know, give it a shot. Just, you know, the only failure is the failure to try. So I threw my name in the hat. I tried out and I was accepted. So that was my first kind of experience in now, all of a sudden I went from, you know, good organizations to, you started getting these elite high performing, very selective organizations. And, uh, and that was, that was a gear change. It's, it's actually uh, a little more intimidating when you're in a leadership role in those environments where you're the new guy, but you're in charge and everyone knows what's going on and performs at a high level, but you're the one who's so supposed to be kind of, you know, hurting the cat, so to speak. Or sometimes it's kind of like Gandhi said, you know, there, there go my people. I must follow them for I'm their leader. Like that definitely happened a lot. And how old were you? So just sort of like a timeline we can kind of kind of follow. Ah, uh, so let's see. I think I was twenty five. And you don't, have to, you don't have to give exact dates. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, so I'll, you're still uh, really young. Yeah, yeah. So I was I was twenty five when I came back in as an officer. Uh, by the time I went to Ranger Regiment, I think I was twenty seven, twenty eight, and like never do math in public. So these are ballpark numbers. It was a long time ago. Right. But I mean, just again, thinking about, you know, it, it's interesting to see how individuals develop, right? They always say, you know, everyone takes a certain amount of time. It really depends on who you are, your personality, this and that. But you're at such a young age. I mean, you really started adulthood, right? At 17. I mean, if you really think about it, you really dove in. So you were, you know, I, and I, I would love to know, did you find that you were like a little bit more mature? I think I know this answer from what you said before, but were you a little bit more mature and a little bit kind of ahead of yourself or was it more of just an impulsive, like, no, I'm kind of a rebel? Probably more the impulsive. I mean, I, you know, I, I kind of had a track record of making fairly impulsive decisions. I'd like to think I was more mature. I'd probably paint myself. I'll tell my kids I was, but between you and I and whoever's listening, no, I was typically, you know, let's do it. Jump in, we'll figure it out. Um, and, and I think one day I'm going to, I'm going to get over that and get better. So 48 years in counting, but I think I think I'm right around the corner from becoming a little more measured in my approach to things. Well, but, but if you think about it, what you were doing, you really needed that to have that impulsivity. I mean, there's people that are wise, right? You always meet someone that's like wise beyond their years and you're like, wow, they're really young, but they're so wise. But then you also meet people that have that impulsivity and sometimes that impulsivity is good or sometimes it's not so good, but what you were doing, you kind of had to have that impulsivity. Yeah. I, I think you hit on a really important thing. And I, you know, I work with a lot of different organizations and teams where you we talk about this exact thing. What, what can serve you in a strength in one capacity can be a liability in others. So the ability to move quickly, make decisions and commit is a huge strength. You can move really fast. You can iterate. Uh, you know, we see organizations that do it. You know, they might, you know, they'll try 10 times. They'll fail once, but succeed nine and they'll move forward. You know, Tesla is a great example of these other kind of more innovative organizations. Um, that's, that's a good approach there there are some decisions that should you should be less impulsive about. For example, 19-year-old Phil married someone he knew for two days. That was a little impulsive. You should at least like a solid five days before you make a lifelong commitment. 
I'll just throw that out there for anyone who's on the fence a day and a half. <laughs> Give it a solid week. Um, but it, 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 yeah, so I mean, it's, it's something where, you know, um, being able to, you know, make rapid intuitive decisions and commit and make the best fit definitely paid off quite a few times, and which is why I probably embraced that characteristic. But then there's, there's been other times where it's like blown up in my face. And I'm like, Hey, I, I need to build compensatory mechanisms and have people in my corner that can be like, hold on a minute. Um, is this really the best idea? And just to take that pause. Well, and I think that's so important what you said. You need those people in your corner that know you and know when to be like, well, like I have my husband cause I am super impulsive who will be like, have you thought about it this way? Never telling me, no, that's not a good idea. He never does that, but he will say like, have you ever thought this way? Or, and I have one of my, one of my children, my middle son, who kind of does the same thing. And I saw like when he was really little, I was like, Oh, you got, you got that part that your dad has that works really well with me. Like it's really good to just to do that pause. Um, because again, as you said, sometimes being impulsive is really important and actually really good. Even, you know, I'm impulsive. I'm not in the military, but I have made impulsive choices that have really paid off. It's like, you can't think here. You just need to do. But then obviously, you know, I've made choices that I was like, huh. Wish I thought about that a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's that whole risk tolerance, right? There's a continuum, and it shifts based on your environment. There's, there's, there's times to move quick and, and times not to. And, you know, at this phase, you know, my career, uh, you know, we're at the at the start of the post nine eleven era, where all of a sudden it went from, you know, like I deployed to Yugoslavia in a peacekeeping mission. That was my only operational deployment up to that point, and now it was. You know, I deployed 12 times after 9-11, you know, to all, all the hot spots. And it was interesting. I like when I was in this, you know, in, in the Rangers, um, totally had imposter syndrome as a young leader uh, and probably rightfully so, but it wasn't until we, we got in some pretty sporty situations that I was able to like, you know, navigate them with some competence that all of a sudden my credibility were people like, okay, you're all right. Uh, and I came in after, like the person I followed, I hate this as a leader, the person I followed in the boots, in the, in the, you know, took over the platoon from was like this off the charts rock star, like best human ever, you know, that's who I came in before. So I was just not that person for the first year until, you know, we'd, we'd been to combat and, and then all of a sudden it was like, okay, you know, you're, you're all right. Right. Now, do you think, because I think this is also really fascinates me because there's, you know, people get experience by actually doing, and some people really need that experience to, you know, to put those two feet on the ground to be able to kind of be like, I've done this. This is how I know other people really learn from like the education side, right? They really learn. They don't need to be in the field to, to get the same kind of skills that someone else. Like I know I am, a, I have to do it. Like, that's how I learn. I'm a very tactile. I need to see it. I need to do it. I need to physically be in it. Did you feel at any time, like, you know, as you said, you kind of were filling someone's big boots, but did you feel that going into 9-11, right? You only had, as you said, the, the one deployment into Yugoslavia and it was a peace kind of keeping thing where now you're going into massive hostile times. Were there any times in your head that you were like, I wish I had my feet on the ground a little bit more before, or were you pretty confident in your leadership skills that you had learned along the way? Honestly, I'd say I was pretty confident. I mean, that was one thing, especially as you start getting, you know, the military is good at it. And then it just gets progressively 
better, I think, in, in the special operations community is it's what I model my business after now, right, for leadership development, because the, the principles are pretty continuous, whether it's business, sports, military, nonprofits, you know, fill in the blank. The principles of effective leadership and high forming leadership really haven't changed much for about 2300 years, at least as much as I've read. And so I felt like I had a good technical, tactical, academic background on how to lead and how to do my job as much as you could prepare for a completely unknown situation. Uh, and then I had been through, you know, countless scenarios up to that point where you, it's that whole saying, you know, sweat and training saves blood and battle, like train in complex, hardest possible scenarios. So that when you get to the real thing, you're like, Oh, this isn't that bad. Like my helicopter still works when I trained, you know, we simulated, I crashed. So yay, we're up one. And I mean, things like that would literally happen. So I, I would never, I wouldn't be flippant. I mean, I've lost a, a lot of folks I worked with and I, I don't want to be cavalier about it, but I would say almost probably about 90% of situations I found myself in, I was reasonably comfortable that no, we've, we've got the right skill set um, and, and the right mindset to, to sort through this. Um, and that, that was just me personally. But I think that's huge. And I, you know, I, I believe in God, but you know, whether you believe in God or the universe, I do feel like, there's people born for certain things, right? You, you, you get these, you know, whether it's, you also have uh, a parent that is kind of innately the same sort of way, or there's an uncle or grandparent, you know, someone in your life that you really are born that they're like, Oh, I really see this trait in you. Your dad being in a role of, you know, a minister, obviously he was a leader. Um, do you feel like any of that, you know, kind of natural born leadership came from, your father, and as you said, he was super strict. You didn't love in there, but as you're now older, have you reflected and ever thought like, huh, some of that is, you know, my dad gave to me, or do you think that that was just kind of innate in who you were? I, I mean, I'm going to be totally straight up with you. I probably learned some on how to be a parent and how to be a leader from my father, but it wasn't in the way you'd think. A lot of it was, I want to be different and I'll just leave it at that. And, 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 you know, my dad passed away years ago and, you know, God bless him, but, you know, loved him, respected him, uh, still respect him. But as far as leader and, and parenting, I learned a lot as far as, okay, I need to take a different approach because this did not resonate with me or, or, or other folks. So, I'll, so yeah, in, in a, in a kind of upside down way, I, I would say I did learn some. But I think that's important because it is, it's still in an upside down way. Like if your dad, your dad was such a strong human, right? And had such a presence and did things in a way that you were like, it didn't work with me. It gave you that side to be like, okay, I am a leader as well, but I want to do things different. And I think, you know, good or bad, that's something that, you know, it, it helps us grow as, as people like, yeah, I maybe didn't love this. And so I'm going to do it completely opposite where sometimes, you know, I even find when I parent my kids, I like will sometimes laugh because I'll be like, Oh, that was like so annoying. I remember when my mom used to do that and I really didn't like it, but now I'm doing it. And it was all, you know, it was more of a benefit the way she used to, she, you know, everything was a teaching moment, still is a teaching moment as a grandmother. She was a kindergarten teacher, everything. And every once in a while, I'll find myself doing that. And it's, it, you know, it will make me laugh because my kids will have the same kind of reaction. Like, mom, not everything's a life lesson. Not everything is a teaching moment. And I'm like, interesting. I don't remember saying that to my mother. I think I just internalized it. But like, you know, sometimes there is times where it, it is really important and it is a life lesson and it is a teaching moment. So this is going to bring me kind of into, 
you're now, you know, on the ground, you definitely are born a leader. You know, I mean, you learned these people kind of saw this part of you like, Hey, this kid has something more than others. Let's help him with his direction. You obviously listened, kind of interpreted and went and, and, and really followed that, whether it was like first, because it was like, Oh, that's a great salary to then wait a second. I'm really good at this, you know? So whatever it is to kind of have you take that next step. A lot of people sometimes miss that next step because they don't look at the whole picture. And so when you're now, you know, boots on the ground doing what you're doing at, you know, or late twenties, I mean, that's to me, you know, I don't want to talk about what I was doing in my late twenties, but I mean, I was getting ready to get married. So I should say that maybe like mid twenties, we don't need to talk about, but <laughs> you, you lived, you know, again, a lot of life as a young person. And now you're thrown into this. And as you said, you were trained and so not completely thrown, but where did that then take you into your next pivots in life? Sure. Yeah, no. And there was a big pivot coming up. So first off, absolutely. You know, especially after first major deployment um, with my team and really finally was like, you get that confidence like, oh, okay, I, we, we can actually do this. I can do this. And the imposter syndrome quiets down a bit. And it never should have been there in the first place, but you know, we're human. Uh, deployed three more times, worked, worked, uh, some with Pat, Pat Tillman, the NFL player who, who later died overseas, who's just exceptional, uh, as a human being. He's one of those people you, you learn leadership just from watching, even though he wasn't in a formal leadership position. So that's a total segue, but well worth anyone checking out or reading the John Krakauer book. Uh, I think it's where men win glory about him. So just asterisks there, put a pin in it. Uh, so for me, I deployed three times. And I remember I was on deployment. It was November 2003. And I was up in the Hindu Kush mountains of Afghanistan. It was freezing. It was snowy. And um, across the valley, one of the guys I worked with, his name's Pat, radios me. He goes, hey, Phil, can, can you come over here? So I, I run across the valley. He's about a mile away. And I'm like, what's up? And he lets me know that uh, you know my mother-in-law uh, had died the night before, who I was extremely close with. Um, you know, and, you know, my wife at the time was pregnant with our first son. Uh, and I'd, I'd had, you know, I had this amazing daughter from, you know, my first marriage, the two-day one. We talked about impulsivity, um, wait a week. So I remember just sitting there on the sat phone where it kept breaking up, like I kept losing reception. You know, this is 2003. We don't have the same level of technology we have now. And I'm trying to support my wife through losing her mom. And I'm like, you know what? I don't think I want to do this again. Like, I want to be there when we have our first kid, I'm going to be able to support her better. And, you know, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to change tracks. I think I'm going to finish my time, but I'll, I'll go try to be a good, really folks. I'm being a good dad, husband, just a, a civilian. So I ended up getting out in uh, May of 2004. Um, I, ironically, Pat Tillman uh, lost his life on the 22nd of April. As I was coming back from my third deployment to Afghanistan, my son was born in 26. His middle name is Patrick after, after Pat Tillman. Um, and I became a civilian and I worked as a service manager for corporate America with a team of 30. And, and in a way, I actually really liked it because all the lessons I had learned in the military applied, you know, lead by example, balance the mission with the people, invest in your people, believe, you know, coach them, mentor them, show them what's possible. Um, and it was really fun. But I wasn't crazy about the, the profit-centric world. And there was a 
lack of congruence between the stated values of the business and the lived values. The stated values were, you know, people and, you know, customers, number one, blah, blah, blah. I'm I'm not going to throw out the name of the company, but what would actually happen would be like Thursday, they'd be like, Hey, you know, we got to hit our numbers, you know, cut two people off your team by tomorrow because we got to hit our, you know, PL numbers or whatever it was. And I'm like, wait a second. I thought we were all about people. And now you're telling me arbitrarily fire them. And there are some other practices. I'm like, okay, this is kind of BS. I, I'm not down with this at the same time, you know, the, the words that we thought were kind of tapering off were actually picking up, you know, I had friends getting hurt. I lost some friends and, you know, I'm sitting here wearing a, a suit and tie and, you know, making a decent salary, but I'm like, this, this doesn't feel like where I'm supposed to be. So after about a year and a half of being a civilian, um, I, I put a packet in to go back to the military. And I remember telling them like, I'll, I'll drive trucks, I'll cook, I'll like, just bring me back in. I don't care what I do. Huge irony here. And this is the army being a, you know, insane bureaucracy. They, at this point, they were pulling people back to active duty against their will. So people who had gotten out like me, they're like, Hey, actually, you know what, Juliet, we need you back. You're coming back in. And you're like, but I, I have my kids and I'm a school teacher and I've got a life. And they're like, yeah, sorry, country needs you. We've still got you on the books. So you owe us a few more years. They're pulling people against their will in about 30 days to come back and serve. I'm sitting here going, Hey, now I was an infantry guys, ranger, done all these cool schools. I have three deployments under my belt. Like put me in coach. And they're like, yeah, we, we don't really have an effective system for bringing people who want to come in back in. They had a system, but it was like, it was not well run. And, uh, so I beat my head against the wall for about four months to try to come in and finally called. It was actually, uh, John Nicholson, the guy who's retired four star general. And I was like, Hey, sir, I'm just, all I want to do is come to work. Like, you know, I, I want to come back and serve. And, um, you know, long story, long story long, I did end up coming back in. Uh, they put me right back sort of where I left off and I had, uh, you know, I, I was doing some military schooling at that point. So I'd, now as a captain, gone up a level in, you know, in rank and, uh, same thing, someone who is like, and I had been looking at becoming a green beret and going the special forces route. And one of the instructors at this school, now keep in mind, I, I literally was like, I'll come in and drive trucks. Like, I don't care what I need to do. I just want to serve. I don't feel right, you know, living this life when my friends are, you know, living a much different life and at higher risk. Um, so I'm in this school, learning how to be a good infantry company commander and captain. And one of the instructors there is like, Hey, you know, you know, he was a special force guy. Like, you ever think about that? I'm like, yeah, you know, I thought about it. I dropped a packet, but then I got out. So, you know, that ship has sailed. I'm fine. You know, and he's like, well, let me, let me make a call. And so next thing I know, he comes back and he goes, Hey, you know, I don't know where you're at for readiness, but if you want, you can go to tryouts. So you can go to, you know, our special forces assessment and selection. He's like, but it's, it's in like two weeks. I'm like, yeah, let's sure. Let's do it. Um, I mean, worst thing that happens is I die or I don't make it. And like, at least I tried. So I went to tryouts in, in SFAS special force assessment selection. Isn't it's not a course you die. And I've been dramatic there, but bottom line is like fear, <laughs> fear, fear of failure was not going to stop me. So I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So I got picked up and then I went through about two years of green beret training after that. And some of the best leadership training I've ever done was that pipeline because they did such a great job of building these scenarios. It was like a choose your own adventure book from the eighties. Like if you do this, they would totally rework the entire exercise around your decisions and you would deal with new ramifications, whether they're good or bad. So they taught sort of consequent management and it, it was amazing. And, uh, and then I began my career as a green beret. 
Now, how many kids at this point did you have? And where was your... Well, I'm going to have you answer that first. It's another math problem. Uh, let's see. So I had my oldest daughter, my son. My next daughter was born right as I started special forces training. So I'm at three at this point. Okay. And, and how was your wife? Like, did she see that you weren't like being, you know, feeling fulfilled and loving what you were doing. And was she supportive? Was she hesitant? Yeah, she was actually really supportive. I think she, so at that point, you know, she had been looking into med school uh, after her undergrad. And then when she lost her mom, you know, first she supported her mom through cancer and then lost her. So that kind of derailed a lot of her initial career plans. And then it was like, Hey, you know, let let's, let's build a family. You know, timing for med school is not happening. Let's, let's build a family. We went down that route. So she was, she was actually really supportive. Um, and I, as I'm saying that, I'm like, I don't know why, cause she's signing up for me being gone six to 10 months a year, but, uh, no, she was, she was really supportive and like, she's like, go for it. Like be the best you. Right. I mean, but if you see like you're, you know, the person that you love, the person that's there knowing that they're not in like what they're meant to do and you could feel it and you know that you have things at home. I mean, I would assume, you know, I've obviously never been in that situation, but it's like, I want this person to live the best life. This is the person I married. This is, you know, you were obviously in the military when you guys met. Right. I mean, and, and so she knew what she was kind of getting into. And, you know, it always fascinates me because I, you know, I speak with a lot of NFL and, and professional athletes and what I think a lot of people don't think about, and if you really, really think about it, is you're doing something at such a level. And then all of a sudden, one day, it's like, boom. It's not like you can like taper out and kind of be like, okay, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to take a couple steps back. It's like you're going from 100 to zero. And when that happens to someone, it doesn't matter how strong mentally you are, you're going to go through stuff. <laughs> You're going to grow, you know, really go through mental, but also physical. You know, I know just for myself, I mean, I played college sports and I remember, and even now as an adult, if I don't work out, you know, if I, if I'm traveling and I don't work out to the level I typically do, which is not crazy, you know, for a week, I feel it. My family feels it. I become a grumpy, grumpy person. It's annoying. Like it really annoys me that like my body can't be like, okay, you didn't get a chance to work out. Now you're going to be, you know, <laughs> a grumpy lady, but it does. So like, I'm sure your wife felt that there was something missing. And so she just, you know, obviously you guys, you know, she wanted to support you. I'm, I'm putting words in, in her mouth, but like, I do think when you have someone at that level in your life that you already committed to, it's like, okay, I, I need to kind of be there and support them, but it has to be hard also on her side, right? You're away. What, what could happen? She loves you. She doesn't want anything to happen, but you know, life is life. No, I, I think that's spot on. And you know, she had been a college athlete too, and she's a high performer. And I think she understood like, yeah, you're, you're at 40% in this role right now. Like you need to get back into, you know, the, back into the fight figuratively and literally and, and, and kind of be the, be the best you in the current environment. So, but yeah, no, it's, it's a great point. Right. Well, I mean, and, and, but it's true, but, and then people don't really, really stop to think about it. Like military professional athletes, you're, you're at a level, like you have such routine 
every day it's the same. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, it's like, boom, I mean, it's things are going to happen. We need more support, in my opinion, in that back end of when people are coming out of the military, when they're coming out of professional, you know, uh, you know, that role, because again, you chose to kind of take a step back. So it is, but it's, it doesn't matter whether you choose to, you don't realize what's going to happen to your mind, your body, everything around you. And so, you know, the fact that you were able to go back in, cause you're like, no, this is really where I, you know, I feel the, the best where I want to be and that you had that support is really important. So now you're a green beret and you know, you're kind of at the top, top of your game. Now what, you know, where did that go and what did that look like? Yeah. So uh, now I went from working with relatively large organizations, you know, numbering the hundreds of people to, you know, working with really small teams of, of 10 to 12. And uh, now instead of going out with just a bunch of Americans on missions, um, we, you know, we were basically embedding with Iraqis, with Afghanis, with, with Filipinos, um, you know, folks all around the world. And we were speaking the language, eating the food, integrating, training, uh, going out on missions with them, fighting alongside them, losing people alongside them. And it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty powerful time. Probably my most memorable experience, you know, is you know, my three years as a, as a special forces team leader, a green beret team leader. It's the same thing. Uh, just, just the people I served with and sort of the things we went through, it was pretty rapid back to back deployments at, you know, a pretty busy time, uh, in the arena of global affairs. Uh, and yeah, it was, like I said, memorable for lack of better words. And, um, you know, it's one of those things you look back now at, at, at where some of the states, those areas are, and, and you get a, a bit of a pit in your stomach. You know, I do personally, you're like, wow, that's, that's a lot of blood, sweat and tears. Um, for what, but you still have those discrete individual memories of, Hey, but while I was, while we were there, we did the best we could with what we had and, and were we always right? Did we make mistakes and, you know, policy and politics and whatever, you know, that you have your circle of influence, which is typically your choice, maybe your actions. If you have, you know, your full physical and mental capacity, and then you have your circle of concern, the things that stresses, stress you out and bother you. And again, that's the politics, the policy, the what's happening on the global field. But when I look back and go, Hey, what, what were we doing? You know, were we, were we doing the best we could in the, in, in the most legal, moral, ethical way possible, given the circumstances? And I'm like, and if we can say yeah to that, then okay, no regrets. It, you know, it was what it was. And, um, so it was, it was, it was a pretty special time. Like I said, it was fast paced. It was all over the place, but kind of sears in your memory. And then it was a classic, um, general Scott Miller, different guy. Uh, who's, who's kind of a mentor and, and now a friend of mine. He recently retired. Uh, he sort of asked me, he came out to this little base I was at and said, Hey, what, what are you doing next after, after your team leader time? I'm like, I, I don't know. And, um, he sort of pointed me in the direction of it, of, of another organization, sort of another, like, throw your name in the hat and give it a shot. Uh, and I won't go into any details about that one, but, um, you know, I ended up kind of going that, that route. Uh, after being a Green Beret. And that's where I, from there, that's where I spent the majority of my military career. And it was... Well, can you tell us, can you tell us what it is or is it classified? <laughs> I, yeah, I won't, I won't go into the name of the organization. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, now I'm so curious. Okay. No, I got it. Uh, I got it. So, and so how many years was that? I just tell you, but then I'd next? have to throw my computer in the bathtub. So... <laughs> 
I kind of, I've kind of got it. But so how many years then? And, and now were there four kids, five kids? Where were, uh, where, always, where was the family? With, and always with the math, always with the math and the kids. Just don't ask me birthdays. Okay. Uh, let's see. So I won't. <laughs> let's see. My fourth, my fourth kiddo was born and, and I've got like, basically in my head, my kids are tied to different deployments. <laughs> So yeah, no, I'm sure. Right. So my fourth child was born on my second Iraq deployment when I was a special forces team leader. Um, and then I, I left, I'd been in first special forces group and then I left there and went to work for this, uh, organization in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And that's when we, uh, adopted uh, our first kiddo. Uh, We had been a three year process, uh, just amazing, amazing kiddo. Uh, international adoption. He joined our family in 2012. Um, yeah. So now I guess I had five kids for the majority of that time. Okay. And now did you guys all live in North Carolina? Was that something that the whole family could do or was it where you still had to be stationed away? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I was gone a lot for work, but all of us were in, uh, in North Carolina together. Um, you know, and then, and then my oldest daughter, you know, she lived with her mom probably the majority of the time, but she lived with us for a little bit. Um, and it was, it was one of those moments. It's actually, you know, she's 16 or 17 and dealing with high school, you know, just being 16 and 17. Uh, and I'm overseas and I remember she's doing silly things. No one near as silly as I did, but I'm trying to uh, parent her via Skype at the time. And I'm like, this is really hard. And it was, that was one of those moments and I'm like, you know, I think I'll do my 20, but then I really need to like, I want to, I want to raise my family, you know, all these other kids, like start and finish high school, same town with family around and with me there. Not that that will necessarily make things better, but man, trying to parent teenagers through a computer screen, I was like, yeah, I think this is it. I remember telling, you know, two of the people I work with, you know, one was my boss and one was kind of the senior enlisted guy. I'm like, yeah, I think, we do good work and this matters, but there's lots of other people can do this instead of me, but I'm the only person that can raise my kids. I like, I think at 20, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, at this point, I think I was at 16 years in or 17 years in, I was like, I think I'm going to go dad hat, you know, put my dad hat on. And I think that's, I mean, but I think that is like such a beautiful thing because it is, again, it's bringing you back to kind of your childhood. You wanted to do things a little different with your kids and you've had this, career, then you kind of paused it. And then you went back in, you know, with the support of your, if, of, of your wife and having these significant times, right. It was first your wife's, um, you know, your mother-in-law passing and you weren't there, like, which had to be like such a kick in the gut and you wanted to be there, I'm sure for her, but also you wanted, you know, to also be there for you because you also were, you know, mourning the loss. And then as your kids are growing, you're adopted. I mean, I know we can get into so much. You're probably gonna have to come back on, on your next stop. My, my, my listeners know that when I, when I start diving in, cause this could be like a three hour, cause I got so many questions, but you guys chose to adopt, which I know we shared that I have a sister that's adopted. So I, you know, I'm always fascinated how that kind of works. But I, again, we're, we could bring that into another, another podcast, but then you're, Again, you have teenagers that are going through stuff that you feel, okay, I'm being pulled. And we all have this, t- these times in our life, right? Where we 
are here and we really are here, but then we're getting pulled into a different direction. And sometimes it's like, okay, how long am I going to be pulled in that direction? Is this something that I need to really keep like keeps coming up? Is this something I need to explore? Is this something I need to kind of ignore and push away? And, and the fact that you're like, okay, I need to be there again. So how did that look? You know, did you leave at 20 and then where did that, you know, kind of journey take you? Yeah. So I, uh, I kind of communicated that to some folks I worked with and they sort of did the eye roll and they're like, Phil, you know, everyone says that like you're, you're in a good position. You're not leaving. You're just, that's how you feel right now. I'm like, no, I'm pretty, pretty sure this is the path I need to take. And, um, and, and they, they gave me some great jobs after that. I mean, it was, it was, I was, you know, I was on a good trajectory, uh, within the organization, within the military writ large. And, uh, yeah, at one point, you know, I'm looking around going, I, you guys should be giving these jobs to someone else. Like someone who's, you know, going to stay in for 30 and wants to be a general. Like I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to work my, my ass off while I'm here, but like, yeah, I don't need to be a general at the end of the day. I want to be a good dad. You know, that's, that's what matters in my last hour of life. And, um, I sort of gave my notice when I, I got to 20. I'm like, okay, I think, I think this is it. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like you were serious. I'm like, yeah, no, I was serious the whole time. And they're like, well, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? I'm like, I'm going to go to Montana. I'm going to f- probably go to school and figure it out. They're like, well, you know, um, how about we, you know, maybe we can help find you a job out there in the military and you can just take a year, cool your jets, recenter, you know, you've been going pretty hard and then maybe we can bring you back in, you know, to this organization, you know, maybe we can, kind of pick up where he left off. And I'm like, okay. I mean, I'm not going to say no to being moved to Montana and working out there and having my, my rank and military salary. So, um, you know, working with these different organizations, they found a job where I went from, you know, this, this organization that, that had some of the best green Berets and Rangers and other special ops folks. I went from that to Montana state university ROTC instructor. And I was kind of like a lieutenant colonel without a job because they had a lieutenant colonel who did all the like admin video conferences paperwork. And then there was captains and majors who did the instruction. And then there was me kind of giving like, do what you think you should best do. And I'm like, I really want to teach leadership and help make good officers. And I think a lot of people could look at that being like, oh my goodness, it's like going from, uh, you know, the NFL to teaching Pop Warner football. And I think it would have been easy to be like, oh, this is like, I'm just going to put it in neutral and, and ride this out. And um, instead, I'd say it was probably some of the most impactful two years of my military career. As silly as that sounds. It doesn't sound silly at all because it also shows where you're meant, what you're doing now. I mean, Stowell training, right? I mean, it, it totally set you up for what you, what, you know, this was the part that you were supposed to be doing for this time to be training you to get to where you are. I really believe that. And I think that's beautiful that you actually see it too. Is like, you know, I, that, that two years was something that was more significant than anything because again, it set you up for where you are. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but like, I think that's just, I, I like makes me want to scream. I love it. <laughs> yeah. No, scream if you got to get it out better out than in. But, um, <laughs> it, you're, you're totally right. And, you know, I've just always been of the mindset, kind of grow where you're planted, right? Like just point the right direction, keep taking the next step and what will be, will be. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was an amazing time and it totally opened doors down the road to what I, what I do now. 
And it's really neat because when I was working, you know, at Ranger, Green Beret, other organizations, when, when I was working with truly elites, the best and the best in the world, um, I could set conditions, but everyone was pretty established and pretty proven there. Like no one got to where we were without having their act together in a big way. They had the discipline habits. They were purpose-driven, value-based top performers. I was not going to revolutionarily change everyone, anyone's life or shift their paradigm on what it is to be. Um, I, I still had an important job and, you know, I was, I was part of the team, but I, your impact's not as much. And I, I've talked to folks who coach the NFL and they're like, yeah, it's kind of the same. Like, you know, they're, they're fairly established. It can be a challenge for an average coach or a assistant coach to have a huge influence on some of these, especially somebody who's been playing for 15 years, right? Like, who are you? Um, and then I went to ROTC and I had these 18 to 22 year olds and they didn't know exactly where I came from or what I did, but they'd kind of look at the uniform and go, that's a lot of stuff. And so I had credibility with them. And they're also at an age where they were just like multiple clay. So they got to listen to 22 years of, Hey, just some thoughts. But if I could go back and do it again, you know, I'd make sure I have my purpose dialed in. Think about your values. This isn't fluffy stuff. Like, you know, live your life backwards. Tell me about your funeral, best ever, and let's work work backwards for there. And what's that person look like today? Whether it's as an officer, whether it's as a student, son, a daughter, husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, friend, whatever. Like, let's be that person today. And I tried that philosophy. And, you know, this was now uh, seven years ago or six years ago. So now I'm seeing these people in their mid-20s and they're just crushing it. And it's like proud dad, sad dad moment. Like, I'm like, I'm so proud of how well you guys are doing now. I'm a little sad that I was nowhere near as squared away as you at that age. Like I was still learning, like muddling through the dark and they're just, you know, there's a husband and wife couple that, you know, I had the the privilege of, you know, instructing for a couple of years. And they were the first husband and wife couple to get through U.S. Army's Ranger School, really challenging school. Ironically, she beat him through it. He had to do one phase over and she smoked through it. And they're just <laughs> like, they're just awesome humans. And I'm like, I feel so blessed as part of your story. And in my head at night, I like to imagine it was a pretty big part of the story, but reality, you know, I was a small influence, but still huge pride in that. Yeah. I mean, do you, because now I want to take it back to like the officers that saw the leaders that saw something in you at that young age that then shaped you. And so, I mean, you know, it sounds like I was, that was going to be my next question to you. Like, obviously that husband and wife couple, you saw something in them and you maybe trained them, not trained them, but you gave them a little bit more. Um, I don't know. I don't want to say like tough love or like insight or, you know, what, whatever it is when you're a leader and you see someone, you know, something in someone that you know that they can do it, you give them a little bit more direction. Not that you're not giving someone else, but maybe you gave them like, do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like, does that make sense? Like how many of those kids yeah. Did you come across, do you feel that like you were like, yeah, I saw something different and I knew that I needed to push them a little harder or I saw something different in this one that I knew I needed to like, you know, kind of teach in a different way. I mean, that's like parenting, you know, it's, it's it, what you're doing and then what you're doing in your business now. So if you can take us through that a little bit. Yeah. And I, I think, so first off, I like to think not just in that position, but there as well as what I do now is you start to realize like everyone regardless, first off, everyone has a story, right? We've all got trauma. We've got ups, we've got downs, we've got wins, we've got losses. But when you realize the story to date is only part of it. And, and when you can see people for their potential, that's when you can really unlock some powerful things as a leader. So I like to think when I was working with 
don't know, it's a couple hundred, you know, college students over time in our, in that ROTC program. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe like, I think we had like a hundred and something each year. So again, do the math, but some people, I like to think I saw potential in each of them. And, and I did try to make a, a point to engage at some level, but when you look at them, you know, you, you kind of mentally triage. We all have our biases. We all have our, we see the world. We're a product of our, you know, experience in genetics. So you look at them and right, wrong, or indifferent, probably 10 to 20% of them, whatever you do, you can be the worst instructor, the best instructor. They're going to succeed. They are going to knock it out of the park um, with or without your help. And then, you know, realistically, the sad truth is there's probably for whatever reason, you know, about 10% that you could pour into them, but they're just not going to get there from here. Like it's just, you know, they just, maybe they don't have the commitment. Maybe this isn't really them. Maybe they've just got some things they can't get past, but the reality is, you know, they've got to sort some other stuff out before they move forward. But the ones I really enjoyed working with is that, that middle block who it's like, could go either way. And can you help them set their sights higher and then give them the tools they need to succeed and help give them a bit of motivation and, and push. And again, I, you know, there's the saying we had in, in the organization I worked at Fort Bragg that goes, Hey, you know, someone who needs to be driven isn't worth the driving. I mean, if you're working with an elite level of team, if you, if, if you need to be a cheerleader or a drill sergeant to get results, you're not an elite level team. That's, that's very transactional. That's like, I've got to entice you or threaten you to make you your best. Um, I don't want to work in that organization. And I, and I, I applied that to every group I work with now. It's like, I will, I'll try to, to, to illuminate some opportunities to you. I'll try to arm you with the right tools, but I'm not going to push you too hard. And I'm not going to try to pull you. Like at the end of the day, it's got to be you. Because if I have to push or pull you, you're only going to do it while I'm there. And that's not sustained growth. I think part of being a leader is what's your legacy? You know, what's the team look like when you leave? And if the team's only succeeding because you're present and you're rah-rah the cheerleader or the hammer or whatever, then that's great while you're there. But yeah, even on a good day, humans are only going to probably live about 85 years. So at some point that comes to an end. But if you can plant seeds and build a legacy and establish a culture, now you have a self-sustaining team, get out of the way. And that's what I try to do there. And then that, it's funny, that bled into like the football team coach who's now at University of Texas, Jeff Choate's like, hey man, come talk to my players, put a boot in their ass. And I had to explain to them that I, I don't do that. I mean, I can lay out some principles, thoughts, share some examples of stellar humans, but they have to, they have to want it. And uh, we started working together and it went from talks to kind of a little more like workshoppy type things. Now it's like, Hey, let's totally pull them out of their comfort environment. Let's level the playing field. So the, the kid who's like a rock star starter is going to be next to the walk on guy who probably will never touch the field on game day. Let's level the field, mix them up all different positions, break all the clicks apart, put them in small teams and get them in the mountains on the water. And let's, let's challenge them. And um, we did that. And then we framed it. So it wasn't just like, ah, you know, let it suck. It was, hey, here's why we're doing this. Here's our end state. It's a competition. So perform. And this is your training for, you know, this day. That helped from a bunch of other SEALs and Rangers and other folks came in and gave me a hand with it. But it was crazy to watch how quickly the team bonded and the culture established. And then you could tell them, hey, this is who we want to be and how we want to do it. And that team went from unranked in 2017 to back to back. They went to national champions championships the last two years, different coach, same culture. They, and I'm so in touch with the current coach, Brent Vegan. They're just like, they totally get it. And I, you know, get to see him, you know, once or twice a year when I'm lucky and love it. 
Right. And, and so when you, when did like stonewater training, like when did, was that born, you know, and, and, and you kind of really set it up, you know, I know what you're doing now, you've touched on it a little bit and we'll get a little bit more into that. But when was the time was after that 20 years that you were like, this is what I need to do. Was it clear? Was it like, you know, you had some bumpy roads there. If you could take us through that a little bit. Yeah, no, it was, it was unclear. I mean, um, so my, my wife had put herself through PA school, physician's assistant school. So pretty demanding program. Uh, we both have master's degrees. She's very adamant that not all masters are created equal. Like mine was like reading books and writing a paper once a month. And hers was like 16 hour days for two and a half years. Um, so she was a PA, so she had a good job. So financially we were, we were okay. And I was retiring as a lieutenant colonel, um, which, you know, we were going to be fine. We're living in Bozeman, Montana. I was totally in love with it. And I'm like, I just want a job where I'm outside and can carry the legacy of some of the people and organizations I served with where I can carry the best of that forward. You know, the memory of friends I've lost, the things that really stood about, out about some amazing leaders I shared. How can I pass that on to other organizations to carry, carry it forward? And so I started a company called uh, Lead 406, 406 being Montana's area code. And it was pretty much, we'd just go off grid into Yellowstone. And we'd work with executives and coaches and things like that. Again, we'd, we'd spend a day talking about leadership skills and where they're at. And then we'd go out in a totally ambiguous environment and they'd practice it and they'd lead themselves. And we were just watching them succeed or fail and then debriefing on each. And then from there, extrapolating, hey, what's the parallel? Like, wow, when you're in charge and you're stressed, you just totally talk over everyone. You go into vapor lock, you don't see anything and you start shouting orders that don't always make sense. Is that, does that happen when you run this other company that you're the president of? And he's like, yep, that is my default setting. Okay. Now let's work backwards. How do we deconstruct it? And so you have these really sticky, powerful memories that you can't just get from a reading a great book or, or going to a hotel conference room. You know, John Maxwell, I'm a big fan of his. I've gone to some of his trainings. I'll walk out. I'm like, it was awesome. And you'll ask me, what was it about? I'm like, ah, try to remember. And that's just trying to remember, forget applying it. But if you go, yeah, you remember that time we were in the water and it was 43 degrees and you flipped the, you know, you had us rehearse flipping the rafts. Then we had to do it before we got into the rapids. Like, and, and we learned the importance of like rehearsals and looking out for each other and following the process. I will never forget that. Now I apply that to my finance business. So the model worked great. Um, one of the attendees, a uh, good friend of mine, she, she actually was like, Hey, we should work together, which sort of turned into, she ended up acquiring my company. Uh, I worked for her for about a year and a half. Uh, she's in the Midwest and you know, my wife and I are both always at this point, we'd adopted three more kiddos, a sibling group, um, who joined our family, older adoptees and all kinds of adventures that came with that. Uh, some of them were teenagers when they joined our family from totally different culture. And, um, so we had some stuff going on. Uh, but I, I was now working for this other company. They're based in the Midwest. There was some travel there. We were still running a Montana program. Uh, and then my wife, because PA, being a PA wasn't enough a challenge for her, she felt really called to be an MD. So she applied to and was accepted into med school as a like 41 year old mother of eight, because I guess that's what you do. Um, so we ended up moving out to Oregon. And, um, and that really was the genesis for Stonewater where just logistically it was, it was a challenge to work with this other amazing organization that was, you know, based in the Midwest. And it's like, Hey, I need to, you know, I'm sitting on top of 4 million people in Oregon. There's all kinds of opportunities for, you know, purpose-driven value-based leadership. 
let me see if I can make this model work here. So as a, you know, dad of eight with a wife fully engaged at medical school, uh, I left a comfortable salaried career with a great organization to entrepreneur in a totally new environment uh, where I had no connections and make it work. So my, my, my risk tolerance is fairly high. And, uh, you know, that was about seven months ago. No. Well, I mean, that's the thing. It, it, do you obviously, you know, you were set up for to do big things. I mean, 16 and, and, and I love so much. It takes me back to you dropping out of high school and then now you have your master's and that's what I want people also to take away from it. It doesn't matter if you dropped out of high school, it doesn't define you. You can still do other things. You just have to kind of explore, listen, figure out what is, you know, it doesn't define you just because you dropped out of high school doesn't mean you have to be working at McDonald's for the rest of your life, that you have greatness in you and you have to explore it because it, 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 again, it's just, it fascinates me. And I love that you kind of had those leaders that were like, no, I think there's something a little bit more here. There's a little bit something more here. Um, and that you were opened, right? We have to be open-minded. I think that's a lot of times people just assume, nope, I dropped out of school or I had this happen to me in my life. So this is what's defining me. We can change our own narrative. Yeah, that is, that is so huge. People, I, I think it's human nature. We define ourselves based on our past. And the reality is the definition of you is an ongoing process. You know, we, we ran some pretty, cha- I, I ran some pretty challenging screening processes for lack of a better word. Now, won't get into huge details, but there was a tendency sometimes to, to stereotype and bias. Like this person's going to make it. She'll make it. He won't the blah, blah, whatever. And I, there's this, this old soul I worked with and he's like, you're not the same person today that you were yesterday. Like you're a new person every day. You're faced with new choices. The other people will judge you based on yesterday but you're not that same person. You can take that knowledge and move forward, or you can let it cripple and define you. And, and that cuts both ways. Yesterday's successes don't guarantee today's successes. Yesterday's failures don't predict today's. Matter of fact, they're all just lessons if we choose to apply them. So I, I love the, uh, the whole mindset approach. I just in the middle of recording one about, you know, mindset of the, the victim, the judge, or the soldier, you know, what, what mindset do you choose? You no, know, I, I'm the victim. Everything else impacts me, my past, other people, the environment, the government, whatever. And then you're just, you're powerless. I'm defined by how society defines me. You know, judges points fingers. At least I'm not as bad as her. I'm better than them. You know, the judge also cuts yourself, but then a soldier's like, Hey, I serve a higher purpose and in win or lose, I'm marching forward. Like I'm, I'm not stopping until, you know, I'm on the other side of the grass and, and you just keep going. You, you ignore the environment. You don't, don't ignore it. You acknowledge it, but you fight through it. And, uh, and it's, you just don't quit. Failure doesn't set you back. Failure is just another tuition payment. It's amazing. I love that. I love that so much. So tell us a little bit about how uh, someone's out there going, okay, this is all amazing. So what is Stonewater? I know it's a leadership development, you know, company, but where and who are like the people that like you're working with? Like if, so someone's listening to this and they're like, this sounds amazing. Is this something that's for me? If you can take us through that a little bit. Sure. So I work with uh, individual leaders as well as kind of executive teams. So uh, let's see people I've worked with, you know, small, mid-sized businesses. You know, I used to say that was my niche, but now I've got some, some global organizations that I'm working with their executive leadership and, and running some programs for them. Uh, I basically operate three pillars within Stonewater. So the first is one-on-one 
kind of leadership coach and executive coach. I'm a certified advanced, certified professional executive coach. And that's where we, we work with the individual, um, you know, kind of in, in their environment and try to help them really hone in on their purpose or defining values. And how does that play out, not just professionally, but also personally. So I'm a big believer that, you know, effective leaders, really long lasting effective leaders are good leaders. Good leaders typically spring from good people. Good people are people who have a clearly identified purpose and, and values that guide their actions. So pillar number one, working with individual leaders. Uh, pillar number two I'll do is with organic executive teams, meaning, you know, do it on financial industries. You know, you've got your executive team of, of six and, you know, whether it's remote or ideally in person, because I'm a big fan of the experiential stuff, like make it sticky and memorable. Um, you know, we'll, we'll work with that team, whether it's, hey, what is, how do we want to lead? Recognizing that everyone leads different, but how do, how do we want to collectively lead as a team? How do we want to define our organizational culture? And how do we build our batch? How do we raise leaders within our organization? You know, you've hit on the theme of people kind of poked me and identified potential and, and nurtured me. How do we, how do we have organizations do that to grow from within? Um, and, and each one of those is broke down in kind of four month blocks I'll do with teams. And, you know, we'll try to incorporate some retreats and other, again, in-person is, is where I really thrive. Although I'd say about 80% of my, my, uh, book of business is, is done remotely. And then the last and probably my favorite thing, cause it's kind of like the funnest is where I'll run these small group programs where it's, you know, five to nine, or I guess four to nine diverse leaders. You might have a college coach. You might have a global executive. You might have, you know, some other nonprofit leader, we bring them together. Um, we, there's, there's usually, you know, six weeks of prep work physically, mentally, even, even like emotionally and kind of soul searching before they come out out of quantifiable metrics and testing we'll do to give everyone that self-awareness. Then we'll come together. We'll teach them some technical skills, review leadership skills, get to know each other. And then we'll go, we'll go for an experience. So like at the end of May, we're going to be going in the Santiam river in Oregon. And it's, it's all about, each of these experiences has a theme and the team leads themselves through it. So we'll rotate like Juliet, you're in charge. You know, here's your task. You have two hours to do ABC. You'll do it. We'll finish. We'll critique it. And then it's like, okay, Phil, it's your turn. Now you're going to do something totally different, but can you apply the lessons? You know, we learned from Juliet's sequence about, Hey, she communicated really clearly. Uh, but you know, we need to, you know, whatever those lessons are, you keep applying it going forward and drawing out the parallels. And so by the end of it, it's all shrouded in ambiguity. No one knows what they're going to do or how it's going to turn out. Um, which is a great business model because when things go wrong for me, everyone thinks it's part of the plan. And I just let that roll. Like, yeah, <laughs> we wanted those two bears to come out right there, um, and eat your lunch. Right. But, uh, yes, yeah, so, so those are the really powerful ones. And, and what's really cool is we'll finish up one of those programs. Uh, I did one in February and it was all in the mountains and in the water and, and actually in the city of Portland. So it was this crazy mix. It was all about adaptable leadership and, and the leaders who came out, what I love is they still meet like, I'd say bi-weekly, monthly. Some of them are local, some are, some are uh, on the East coast, but they still connect and stay in touch. And what I love is like, I get CC'd on the emails, but I'm not driving anything. They're just organically building it. Cause when you're in a leadership role, like it is lonely as heck. And so I love when I can bring them together and they're like, who do you talk? Like my, I, I don't get good feedback from, from my direct reports. You know, no one, no one will tell me when I'm messing up and, and these people connect and then they start bouncing things off each other and sharpening each other. So 
I totally love it. I sort of set the conditions um, and, and, you know, facilitate the, the, the topics and some of the academic instruction, but then the environment really takes it from there. And my job's just to capture the lessons, let them find it in their debriefs and then go, okay, was this fun kayaking or like, what's the application here? And, and when they go, Oh, I get it. Like they'll never forget that experience and they'll never forget the application. So I, hopefully that answered your question. Cause I went all over the place. No, no, you were good. They were great. No, that was perfect. You gave us the one, two, three. So you guys can find more at stonewatertraining.com. Um, and so they can reach out to you that way and find out kind of all the information there. So I, I love this. I mean, again, I said we could talk for hours, but I do have like two questions that I do kind of want to end with. What do you miss most, miss most about being a lieutenant colonel? So what I miss most you know, about the military experience, um, as a whole, I think it was, you know, honestly, it was just that, that concept of very, very viscerally serving something much higher and more important than yourself. You, you were serving the nation and the ideals that, that built a nation. And that's not saying it was perfect, but you were committed to something bigger than you. And, and again, I'd seen people who took that commitment right up into the last second of their life. And they, they believed it and they lived it. Uh, so that, that purpose and, and just how vivid it was, um, you know, I miss that. And I, and I, I do take that to my life now it's different, but no one's guaranteed tomorrow. So it's like, live your purpose, write your story. You don't know when you run out of pages, make it worth it. I love that. Okay. So then my last question for today <laughs> till next time. But what is some advice that you can give people on raising eight teenagers? Not some advice. I shouldn't say that. What eight teenagers, what are some things? And I, I know that I, I kind of know this answer, but if day to day you have like a win that you're like, oh my gosh, okay. That just made today a little bit better that you can kind of tell my listeners, like, so if they're raising kids, they can be like, okay, let me look at like, oh, a win because we all have it. Right. It's like, oh my gosh, everything's always turned upside down when you're raising teens, you know, that they're going through emotional stuff. You're trying to help them. If you're an empath and you feel everything, you're feeling everything and you want to help and you want to make it work and you want to fix it and you can't do it. And you just sometimes have to step back and it's really exhausting. So one win that you can share with us. Like, like an actual win, like, from, from my kids type thing, like a concrete situation story or a concept? No, like just something that you have that you're like, okay, that was a win. Oh, now I saw it happen like, you know, five days. Again, it could be just simple. Like I screamed to put your stuff in the dishwasher and two kids do it now without me having to ask them again. You know, like it, just something simple that you've seen that is just like, I mean, you have eight. I, I just <laughs> So we, 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 we call those, my wife and I'll talk sometime, usually at night when we're exhausted, like, Oh my God, what do we sign up for? And, uh, we call those like rays of light. Like what, what ray light did you have today? And I think for me, really cool things are even, even last night we're sitting, we're sitting around the dinner table, right? I've got three teenage girls at home and my fourth daughter, she lives, lives up in Seward, Alaska and she's 26. So she's, she's past the drama phase now. But I love it when the kids will call out each other in a complimentary fashion. So like my one daughter, Bansi goes, Hey, um, dad, have you, I mean, it's, it sounds silly, but it was cool because she was genuinely complimented. She goes, dad, Tygen was like working out out in the gym. All my kids are pretty athletic. She's like, 
have you seen how friggin' buff her arms are? She does aerial gymnastics. So she's really good at climbing silks and mirrors and stuff. She's like, dad, Tigan is friggin' ripped. And you know, my mother daughter is kind of like, Oh yeah, you know, I mean, but like Bensie's, Bensie's got a track. Yeah. She's got a track meet today. She's like, yeah, she's got a track meet today. And she's like really good too. And these are girls that do not normally get along either. So it's like really cool to hear them. So when they'll compliment each other or, or they'll genuinely highlight something, not because they want screen time, but like they genuinely highlight another, I'm like, okay, there's hope. Or when I watch them proactively, proactively do something like when they see someone else made a mess or did something and I'll just be watching them. And they don't know I'm watching and they'll go pick it up or put it away or do something. And I'm like, and I'll, and I'll try to like capture that moment and be like, Hey, why'd you put those dishes in the dish dishwasher? Were those yours? And they're like, no, why'd you do it? Well, well, they were there. I mean, why wait for someone else to do it? It needed to be done. And I'm just like tears, proud dad, proud dad moment. So no, totally. I mean, I think, and I, and just, you know, on a side, it is because with the dishwasher is like, you know, everyone has to empty it. Not, not me. I mean, I do, my husband and I do, but like, you know, it's, it is the kids chores. And I feel like for years I've been like, okay, if you see that it's clean, just empty it because you're going to have to, why do I have to say, Hey, can someone empty the top? Can someone empty the bottom? Can someone load? Why do I have to do that? Like you're old enough now that you should just really do it. And I have to say for the last number of months, um, sorry about that. For the last number of months, my, I have a couple kids that have been doing it proactively and it literally makes me like, oh, they just knew how happy this made me. <laughs> Maybe they would stop doing it, but no, if they just knew, like, it's just simple things like that as parents that it's like, okay, all my like, Hey, can you just do this? Hey, can you just do that? You know? So I, I love that. Can, can I say one more like asterisk extra thing that sort of makes me proud that I definitely, as I think about it, I see in all my kids. So eight, eight kids, they all have wildly divergent goals, views, personalities. But what I love is each of them are kind of pursuing a level up within their chosen field. So I've got a son. It's super athletic. Um, he's like ultra disciplined, but working out at home on his own. And he, and he helps others. He'll like bring other people. Like he'll, I'll have like four teenage boys working out in my garage, you know, um, you know, my, my daughter who does aerial gymnastics, like she'll go down the garage and she'll just work on her own. She does art on her own, like these cool, productive things. One of them, like K-pop dances, it's a thing. She like will practice these crazy complex dances in her room. And then like, she'll, I, the only time I see it is if she like posts it somewhere, but, um, but it's just cool. Like it's there pursuing, they're pursuing excellence in their chosen fields. And I just love that. Cause I'm like, you know, I was told you had to either be, a doctor or a lawyer, uh, maybe an engineer to succeed in life. Otherwise you are nothing. And, and I've, you know, my, my one daughter works in shipping business in Alaska. I've got a son who's pursuing a degree in archeology, span maritime archeology span in Toronto. And my other kids are, it's like, no, go, go where your heart is, do it well. It'll buff out, you know, like it'll just pursue your passion. And, and so to watch him do that, I'm like, yeah, it's not about, Success is not a quantifiable mountaintop. It's, it's, it's a journey and it's, you just keep stepping until one day you wake up and you go, oh, I'm not alive anymore. And then you get to look back and be like, well, what did I do? I don't really know what happens, but 
in my head, that's kind of maybe what happens. We'll see. No, I love that. I love that. Well, I have to say, thank you again so much for joining your next stop. You guys, you could find Phil stonewatertraining.com. You can also find him on LinkedIn. You can find him on Instagram, stonewater underscore training. I mean, this episode, it just filled me up today. I mean, I love everything that you've done. I love the stories that you created and shared and what, you know, what you have created for your, the legacy of your, your family, but also for others to kind of really bask in what you have trained so hard for so many years to do. And now you're offering it to others, which I just think is beautiful. So thank you again for joining your next stop. No, thanks. It was a huge honor. I appreciate it. Yeah. So you guys, you know what to do. Like, rate, review, share. If you listen to this and you're like, oh, that's so interesting. What a great story. But you don't share it with others. You don't know who needs to hear this. You don't know who needs to actually use Phil for her services. You don't know who's going through something in life. Maybe they are thinking about stopping going to school. Maybe they don't know if they want to go into the military. They don't know what their next path is. This is why you need to share this episode. So share it with as many friends as you can. And we will see you guys next week for another episode of Your Next Stop. I hope you liked this episode of Your Next Stop. Please subscribe to my channel, share with your friends and join in each week. 